Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're speaking with Dr Gemma McKibben. Dr McKibben is Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Social Work at the University of Melbourne, working with Professor Cathy Humphreys in the Violence Against Women and Children Research Team. She specialises in trauma-informed, child-focused research interviews with vulnerable children and young people and is passionate about giving them a voice to government. Her PhD focused on the prevention of harmful sexual behaviour carried out by children and young people. And today, Gemma tells us about the 10 Pathways model to the onset of harmful sexual behaviour that she helped develop and what parents and carers should do. Gemma, thank you so much for joining us on this Keeping Kids Safe, A Bright Futures podcast. That's such a pleasure to be here, Nance. Thank you. (laughs) Really a privilege to talk to you today about this groundbreaking work that you've done in this area. And I think it's such a difficult topic, isn't it, for many parents and carers to contemplate. So really good to break it down from that research perspective about what you've found, what can be done to prevent it or to mitigate it if if you see those behaviours emerging. So perhaps if we can start with, you're doing some really exciting work on particular child sexual abuse prevention programs with McKillop Family Services. What are you doing there with them? So Power to Kids is a a child sexual abuse prevention program that has been uh, developed as an action research collaboration between McKillop Family Services and the University of Melbourne. And we got together, you know, five or six years ago now as Dr. Robin Miller, who was the CEO, who is the CEO of MacKillop and was at the Royal Commission, was taking on that role and she wanted to do something about the terrible and devastating prevalence of sexual abuse in out-of-home care. So that program focuses on three forms of abuse. So one is harmful sexual behaviour when children and young people mostly uh, harm other children and young people. It also focuses on child exploitation where usually adults groom and trick children into sexual activity in exchange for something like cigarettes or a new phone. 
And then dating violence, because there's... And dating violence is intimate partner violence in teen intimate relationships. So that's been a really interesting piece of work. And we co-designed a program, which is called Powder Kids. We trialled that in residential care. And that was a, a positive evaluation. We then took it into foster care, which needed some sort of remodelling. And we're now in the process of taking powder kids into schools. So we've begun a co-design process with educators and the MacKillop Institute to think about what can we be doing better with those three forms of abuse in schools it's exciting to be going into schools. Is it an education approach, obviously, really to, to help in the prevention of these behaviours? There's uh, three strategies associated with Powder Kids. So the first is a sort of whole of organisation, respectful relationships and sexuality education strategy. Some of that's already happening in schools that are delivering respectful relationships, but not all schools are doing that. The second strategy is an early identification strategy and a protective factors strategy. So it's about upskilling educators to see the indicators of the three forms of abuse and to have the confidence and comfort and skills to respond to anything that they're seeing in relation to those forms of abuse. So, for example, we heard from Bruce and Denise yesterday about Cowan parading around at school sort of naked or and with an erection. And so behaviour like that can be picked up by educators and we're really wanting them to be skilled up in that space. And then the third strategy of Powder Kids is about we call it the sexual safety response and that's what do we do when that these forms of abuse are identified who are our multi-agency partners what are the processes how can educators be having brave conversations with children about what's happened to them with parents parents are a big stakeholder in the school space yeah so there's see three levels of intervention if you like. That's great isn't it that it's not just putting the responsibility on children because it's so hard for them to navigate this as well that we we all as a community have a part to play in this. That's it Nance so really skilling up children and parents is just such a small piece of the puzzle in this space and we really need to be focusing on kids who are sexually harming and what we can do to prevent that, but also on adults who are sexually harming. And I think that in the prevention space, there tends to be a a little bit of an over-focus on skilling up children and parents, but actually we need to sort of what we call pivot to the perpetrator. And, and I'm using that term to refer to adults, not to children who sexually harm. And that's what the Stop It Now program of work's doing. Can you tell us about Stop It Now, what uh, that, that program is, is doing? That's a good place to go into that. So Stop It Now is a child sexual abuse prevention program that has run in the UK, in the US, Netherlands, etc. And... We've only just begun a trial of Stop It Now Australia since September 2022. So we're into the evaluation of that. But Stop It Now basically provides a helpline 
and a chat exchange with, you know, senior clinicians where people who are worried about their sexual thoughts and behaviours in relation to children can reach out anonymously and receive help to desist from carrying out any sexual abuse. It's also a service for family and friends. So, you know, say a partner discloses that he's been viewing child sexual abuse imagery, the partner can reach out to Stop It Now for advice about what on earth do I do in that situation? Because what do you do and who do you tell? So it's, you know, it's interesting because Michael Salter, who's another Australian researcher in the space with Jesuit Social Services, recently did a study of around 2,000 men. And they actually found that out of the men who had sexual thoughts in relation to children... One in three of them wanted help to not act on those thoughts. So there is a cohort of mostly men who really do want help not to sexually abuse. The other major thing about what we're finding is that about 50% of the callers are actually pre-arrest or have had no contact with police. So the idea of Stop It Now that Jesuit Social Services and University of Melbourne really envisaged was an earlier intervention. So although we've got terrific police partnerships and they refer into the service, we are capturing a cohort of people who haven't been identified yet and who are at an earlier stage in any offending trajectory they might be on. Have you got any initial results from, you said it's very early stages, but was it promising here in an Australian context as well? It's looking really promising. I'm very pleased with what we're finding in the evaluation. And mostly what we're finding is that there, you know, the theory of change that we set out with at the beginning is about through the the service, through the, the engagement with the caller, really sort of developing an action plan around decreasing risk factors and increasing protective factors for that person and in their sociological context. So, for example, that might mean not drinking alcohol alone at night. Often we're finding that men are accessing child sexual abuse material when they're intoxicated or drug affected so you know so an agreement to you know not drink alcohol an agreement to not be alone with any children and then in terms of protective factors to talk to their GP or their psychologist actually about their thoughts and or to share that with a friend or whatever so to improve the the kind of social network around them so we are finding that theory of change is effective. It is really hard to recruit the callers into the evaluation and we're not quite sure why that is apart from the fact that they may feel it's not anonymous but we do we have had a few really very in-depth and insightful interviews that that we'll share in due course. Stop It Now has been funded by Westpac Grant. Um, We're coming towards the end of that now And people can find Stop It Now just by Googling Stop It Now Australia and having a look at at the website. The issue is the 
the federal government, so the National Office of Child Safety, is putting out a tender for a perpetrator-focused prevention service like Stop It Now, but we're, we're in a bit of trouble if we're not successful in that because we'd really like to keep the Stop It Now Australia service going regardless of whether we're successful in the tender or Jesuit Social Services is, yeah. Well, good luck with that and triggers and funding. It's always, yeah, the overarching aspect, isn't it? The other program I wanted to, us to discuss was, and one that the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, of course, is is proudly supporting, is the Worried About Sex and Pornography project that you're coordinating with Jesuit Social Services. That's right. So we call it WhatsApp. We thought that was kind of funny, but <laughs> I can tell you my kids don't think it's very funny. But um, yeah, so the Worried About Sex and Porn project sort of emerged alongside the Stop It Now program of work because we realised pretty early on that kids who sexually harm or who are having worrying thoughts or behaviours could do with an early intervention service themselves before they get to the pointy end. So we set about thinking about what an online early intervention service would look like for them And we knew that the Stop It Now adult service wasn't appropriate because it wasn't developmentally nuanced. And although Stop It Now is trauma-informed, you know, children require a a real another level of trauma-informed practice. So that project started a a number of years ago and initially was funded by the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare with a small grant to do interviews with practitioners, policy makers, researchers around what they thought this online early intervention service could look like. Then we undertook a scoping review, so we call it the 10 pathways model, and that's about onset because we wanted to understand onset of harmful sexual behaviour. A lot of the literature is about therapeutic intervention or treatment or adjudication. But what about onset? How can we intervene before this happens? So that review, the 10 Pathways paper explored that. And then we were fortunate enough to get some money from the Daniel Morecambe Foundation to continue the WhatsApp project. And that that part of the project involves interviewing children and young people who have sexually harmed about what their early intervention needs are, about what a kind of online service would look like for them, whether they even want anything like that. So we're just, we're, we're two interviews into that and we've got another eight to go, but I look forward to sharing those findings. Such groundbreaking work that you're doing. Perhaps can we break down 10 pathways that you mentioned? Could we go through those? Because I think this is really important information for parents and carers and who are listening to this podcast or even people who have children in their life that they love and care for and want to keep an eye out for and perhaps have noticed aspects that they think are concerning. It's a bit of a complex endeavour, this one, because when we started looking at the literature, so we we wanted to do as a systematic review of the onset literature for harmful sexual behaviour and just really acknowledging my other colleagues here, Julie Green, Cathy Humphreys and Matt Tyler, who also worked very hard on this piece of work. But what we found when we looked at the literature was that there, there wasn't a immediately helpful model or way of understanding what a pathway is. 
So we had to develop a pathway theory and what we ended up with was five concepts that that make up the pathway model. So there's a driver, which is like a psychosocial experience that uh, sets a child on a path to harmful sexual behaviour onset. Then there's the notion of flow, so there's kind of movement over time where a child is sort of propelled, if you like, towards onset. Then there are amplifiers that a child might encounter along this pathway and they're sort of risk factors, things that increase the likelihood of HSB onset. And then there's a tipping point or a kind of trigger and that's sort of the the situational or contextual or internal moment that occurs just before onset. So, And then there's onset, which is the moment in time where a child or young person first displays harmful sexual behaviour. So that's, we had to really think carefully about that pathways model. But then what we found in the literature was 10 main pathways towards harmful sexual behaviour onset. And they're listed not in terms of the sort of strength or prevalence of a particular pathway, but in terms of how much literature there was on each pathway. So the first pathway was the child sexual abuse victimisation pathway and there's most written about that in the literature. And then the final pathway was what we call the hypermasculinity pathway and there's the least written about that. So that's sort of pathway 10. But really what we found is, you know, the 10 pathways. So... The first pathway is the child sexual abuse victimisation pathway and that of course is when a child experiences their own victimisation from either another child or an adult or often it's multiple perpetrators. So that is the driver that sort of sets a child on the trajectory towards onset and then child sexual abuse victimisation tends to cluster with amplifiers such as experiencing other forms of abuse and neglect, being severely sexually abused over long periods, uh, having multiple perpetrators, not uh, utilising social supports in their environment and no blaming to them, that not being able to access that and also inappropriate carer responses to to sexual abuse. So sometimes carers will respond in a sexualised way to their children's sexual abuse, or they'll respond by denying and victim-blaming, etc. So they're the amplifiers. And then one tipping point or trigger for the onset is when a child makes a perhaps an unconscious even decision to try out what's happened to them on another child because you know, what I hear from young people when I talk to them is that they didn't understand why it happened to them so they try it out on other kids to try to understand what on earth has happened to them. So that's one trigger in that and that, that pathway is relevant for mostly for adolescents and for girls and boys, so male and female victims. I don't think it specifies anything about non-binary. 
So I think the living with domestic and family violence pathway is important as a driver because we know just how many kids are living with family violence. It's a, a huge red flag, I think, for harmful sexual behaviour onset. Isn't that interesting that there's that overlap? But I don't know if many people would even really be aware of that, that domestic violence and harmful sexual behaviours have that link. Yeah, that's right. And, and the amplifiers that tend to cluster with living with domestic and family violence are sexual coercion in the parental relationship. So it's just basically saying sexual assault, usually father to mother, intergenerational trauma and, and abuse, and also having a parent with an avoidant attachment style. So that means that a child or young person doesn't have a secure attachment with with a parent. But also that what we know about domestic and family violence is that it's actually an attack on the mother-child relationship anyway. So uh, perpetrators of family violence do what they can to to disrupt the attachment between mother and child. So, and then the tipping point or the the trigger for that pathway or one trigger, there's, there can be lots of different triggers, is being pushed away from the family home because, you know, you're around abuse and family violence and then encountering negative peer groups and it's sort of in that context of the negative peer groups that the harmful sexual behaviour emerges. That's just one, one trigger. But actually, this, that pathway holds three-year-olds to 18-year-olds. So something different's happening for the three-year-olds. They're not being pushed away from the family home and hanging out with other young people. Yeah, so... But it's still It's still... Them. It's impacting them, yeah. Mm. The pornography pathway is an important one. So we just have more and more evidence that pornography is actually causative of harmful sexual behaviour. So it's one of our pathways, one of our drivers, and it tends to be amplified by poor supervision and boundaries, by living in sexualised environments, so where perhaps parents or carers or siblings are having sex in front of each other. It's also amplified by fathers, figures... Uh, stepfathers, fathers, validating pornography use. So you often find that on this pathway, kids are actually introduced to pornography by their father figures, and that validates the narratives that they're seeing in pornography. And it also is amplified by watching violent pornography or by engaging in child sexual abuse material viewing. So they're the things that sort of tend to increase the likelihood of... HSB onset on that pathway and then what you see is a, another conscious or unconscious decision to act out what they're seeing on whoever that happens to be around and it could be a sibling or someone they're babysitting or a cousin or a peer or a dating partner and the interesting thing about pornography is that it occurs across all of the categories in our model so it acts as a driver in that pathway, but it acts as an amplifier across a number of pathways. Mm-hmm. It aggravates the, the other causal factors. Exactly. And it also occurs as a, as a tipping point. Mm-hmm. 
So, like, I, I can't stress enough how much we need to address the problem of pornography for children and young people in Australia because it's causing havoc and it's operating negatively across a number of pathways. This isn't just something that parents and children can control, that there really needs to be a government approach to this as well and some better regulation. Absolutely. So the horse is bolted, is what I think. And, you know, children can just get on Pornhub, you know, just it, or, or RedTube, you know, there's a number of kind of popular porn websites that children access and it's really horrifying and parents and children themselves really cannot solve the problem of pornography. It actually is something that needs to be addressed by government, by the pornography industry and by the platforms that are facilitating not only pornography viewing but actually the production of harmful uh, of child sexual exploitation material because what we're finding and what when you talk to the police is 70 to 80% of the child sexual abuse material they're coming across online now is actually what we so-called, I've got inverted commas here, self-produced child sexual abuse material. So they're being groomed by online perpetrators, usually adults in that situation, who are pretending to be other young people, then asking for nude photos. The kid sends the nude photos through and then there's, you know, the blackmail kicks in to make them send more nude photos. And it's incredibly, incredibly devastating. And then those photos are distributed. So, they're, you know, they're, that's the new kind of source of child sexual abuse material online that perpetrators are accessing every day. So for the parents and carers amongst us listening in, is there any advice you can give regarding that? Is it just a matter of keeping the communication lines open with our children? Or, or what can we do to really hopefully mitigate some of this access to pornography and, and the sexploitation to try and prevent that from happening as well. Yeah, look, I wish there was something I could say that was an answer to that question. I think it's really, really difficult even when you're a, a really attuned parent to know what's happening online for your kids and I think it can happen to anyone this, especially this exploitation, it can happen to any kid, any, you know, socioeconomic situation, living situation, sexual identity, cultural background. So the only thing I can really suggest is creating a safe environment for your child to disclose if something bad is happening. So really understanding how to respond to disclosures in a sensitive way and, you know, immediately reporting any online, any illegal activity to police. And really, I think it is just creating that environment where your child or children feel safe to talk about anything that's happening to them and to have those brave conversations. So, in the Powder Kids Project, we talk about brave conversations and that was a 
Monica Faulkner from Texas University developed the Brave Conversations model, which is one of them is the talk model, which could help parents. So that's take the initiative. So if you're seeing your kid doing something or they're going into their room at strange times and talking, not wanting you to come in, being secretive, being moody, having unexplained gifts. You know, if you see any of those indicators, it's time for a brave conversation. So T stands for take the initiative. So ask them, you know, what what's going on? You know, you, you really, you've really changed. You're not telling me about your life anymore. You know, I'm really confused about what's going on for you. And then the A is, you know, ask them what they think or feel. Is it something online that's happening to you? There's stuff that can happen to kids online and it's called sexual exploitation and this is what sexual exploitation looks like. Is that something that you have come across or any of your friends? So that's the A. And then the L is let them know the evidence about a particular sexual health or safety topic so yeah tell them say look one in four girls are approached online by adults for sexual activity it's not just you know it could be happening to anyone in your friendship group or could be happening to you and then the K is keep the conversation going so there's no one big birds and bees conversation sexual health and safety conversations need to happen consistently across the whole life course of a child. Gemma it's fascinating I I know you identified three crucial things in your PhD that could prevent or even mitigate harmful sexual behaviour could you tell us about that? So the PhD project involved talking to young people who had been through a a harmful sexual behaviour therapeutic service in Victoria and really they said three things. I asked them what could have been different in their lives so that they didn't become sexually harmful and there were three opportunities for prevention and the first was to redress their victimisation experiences and, you know, to make their relationship safe. So many of them had lived with extreme sort of adversity and either their own sexual abuse or physical, emotional, psychological abuse. And nobody had ever stood up for them or intervened in their victimisation. So there was a huge sense of injustice that now they were being held to account but the perpetrators who harmed them just simply got away with it and nobody ever nobody ever even noticed what was going on. So that was the first thing. And then they said, reform our sexuality education because the sex ed they were getting or that they had either was non-existent or it occurred far too late in the trajectory of the HSB onset and it was focused too much on sort of sexual health in terms of contraception, pregnancy, etc., and not enough on rules about consent, rules about incest. They just wanted to know what they were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. And they needed that information back in primary school because the thoughts and behaviours really for that cohort were beginning around that transition between primary and high school. And then they said, 
help our management of pornography. So, and we've already talked a bit about that, but pornography was triggering their behaviour and, and some of them identified it as, as causative. So, again, we do see that in the Pathways model, how devastating pornography is or can be for our young people. And that reassurance that it's, it's not them, that... Even adults get tricked with these exploitation and scams and that, uh, that, that it is a safe place to talk about it with the parents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. shame. I mean, shame is just the, one of the most unhelpful emotions for, uh, you know, I think. And, uh, of course, perpetrators, and I'm speaking about adult perpetrators, they're very skilful at at making victims feel ashamed and that like it's their fault that it's happened. And so shame is a huge barrier to disclosure and that's why we need to, when I talk about creating a safe environment to disclose, there's no, you know, you need to let your kids know that it's not their shame. The shame belongs to the perpetrator and, and they are not responsible ever for the actions of the perpetrator. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gemma. I think that's actually a really good place to end, that there is something that we can do, basically, and that there is some power we can take in this huge issue and problem, that societal issue that we're dealing with, really, but that there, there are aspects that parents can take control of. And thank you so much for, for sharing the, the information on the, the 10 pathways and all the best with your research. Thanks so much, Nance. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.